You're listening to the Knowledge Archives podcast. Welcome to the Knowledge Archives podcast. We're a group of students on a mission to learn from as many different disciplines of knowledge as possible. I'm your host, Madhav Malhotra, and today I'm lucky to be joined by Dr. Nevis de la Valle, Scientific Project Officer at the Joint Research Center of the European Commission. Her work applies theories from behavioral economics to energy-related issues like energy poverty and electric vehicle sales. I'm very excited to learn more about this pressing work and its applications today. So thank you for joining me today. I really appreciate you taking the time and I'm very excited to learn more about the practical applications of your work today. But before we get started, I'd love to just hear a little bit about yourself, how you got started in this area of work and what you're currently doing in your research. Yeah. Thanks a lot for this kind invitation. I am very delighted to be here today and share a bit about my research and work. So my name is Nives de la Valle and I work as a scientific project officer at the Joint Research Center, the GSC, which is the European Commission Science and Knowledge Service. This service basically provides independent scientific advice to the European Commission and support it to develop the European policy. More specifically, I'm part of the Energy Efficiency Renewable Units and I conduct policy analysis and apply behavioral economics to energy-relevant policy issues. So you can imagine that I have an economics background. Indeed, I have a PhD in economics and I'm, I have a specialization in behavioral and experimental economics. Uh, before joining the JSC, I, I was part of another research center in the northeast of Italy, surrounded by the Dolomites, and here it is. Mm-hmm. Given the background, I think it's going to be very interesting to think about some of these applied questions that sometimes we might not be able to ask theoretical economists in this area, and I'm sure that brings up a lot of challenges. but. To begin, I'd just love to set the groundwork for this discussion by talking about the field of behavioral economics as a particular subdiscipline. So many people might not have heard of the specifics of this field and what actually goes on in terms of the theories involved. So first of all, how is behavioral economics different from, let's just say, classical rational choice models, and what kind of factors do we consider in the different stakeholders, how they're making choices, etc.? So thanks for this question that is very interesting indeed, and I think nowadays is also more and more under the spotlight as uh, during the last decade somehow behavioral economics kind of revolutionized some of the foundations of traditional economics, but I think that before answering your question, I would like to maybe refresh a bit some of the basic concepts of traditional economics so that we can also make the comparison more easily. So economics is based on three fundamental concepts, the preferences and rationality. We introduced this concept because uh, somehow microeconomists especially, so the, the economists that study the behavior of individuals and firms, needed some ways to treat individual decisions in a tractable way and provide some insights to policymakers to allow them to make predictions over uh, 
the efficacy of interventions. So these three fundamental concepts that I mentioned are the, the building blocks. And uh, one of the three that is rationality is especially relevant here because what the traditional economy says is that when people make decisions, they make decisions in a rational way. What does it mean in a rational way? It means that individuals make a choice that always maximizes their own well-being. So it means that they are basically self-interested, they care only about their own utility. And the choice that they make is also always consistent with their preferences. The choice is the result of a cost-benefit analysis that is based on all the available information and all the available options. So it seems that yeah, we, with these assumptions in mind, we can really model people's behavior in a straightforward way and, and make some predictions over their behavior when affected by some policy interventions. But the question is, are we really so logical, rational? Are we always making choices that comply with this cost-benefit analysis, considering all the available information? And are we really so selfish? Are we really so uh, caring only about our own well-being? Of course, from our daily life, the answer is no. And we can mention several ex examples here from our daily life. But in order to enable policymakers to use a framework and make predictions over the efficacy of interventions. Of course, the daily observation is not enough. So somehow the greatest contribution of behavioral economics has been exactly to develop a causal framework that enables to model the behavior of real people. So that are not necessarily selfish, that are not necessarily using all the information, making these uh, complex computations all the time. Somehow this framework enables policymakers also to, to make better predictions over people's behavior, over the behavior of real people, not of these uh, utopistic individuals that do not exist. And that was possible thanks to the empirical evidence that was provided by the laboratory and also it was enabled by the exploitation of many psychological theories that somehow fed the intuitions behind the hypotheses that were tested in the lab. I can also go more in depth and make some examples of how behavioral economics enriched the, this framework. Somehow what it shows is that yeah, the behavioral people systematically deviate from this rational choice theory. And these are deviations that are systematic and are present in all the process that leads individuals to make decisions. So we can see deviations in the formation of preferences, in the formation of beliefs, and the actual final decisions. An exemplary type of non-standard preference is the so-called uh, time inconsistence. What does it mean? That usually the standard economic model predicts that individuals make decisions that may also have some consequences in the future, but they will make decisions affecting only their present. So it means that they do decision unconditionally on the passage of time. And uh, the assumption here is that uh, somehow we are always able to make wise and rational decisions that affect our future well-being. 
but also here we, we can have many examples of our failures in uh, self-controlling. Uh, that means that sometimes we make decisions that are uh, somehow bad for uh, our future well-being. The failure to, for instance, invest in energy efficiency is an exemplary one. So here, these self-control problems have been incorporated in the models by behavioral and experimental economists, provided these, let's say, more psychologically plausible models to policymakers who could then use them to describe real problems, as I mentioned earlier, the so-called energy efficiency gap, and then probably correct also these failures which, uh, which are part of our daily life. Mm-hmm. And when it comes to these areas, especially in the context of the applications in studying energy markets, I know you've looked into how behavioral economics can provide insights in a broad range of topics from electric vehicle sales to energy efficiency, as you mentioned. I'd love to hear about the kinds of results you're finding there, but especially how you try to conduct these studies because a key thing that I noticed you focused on before was the experimental part of the research that you're doing. Yeah, so thanks a lot. So basically, in general, the application of behavioral economic insights to policy making has different stages. So it can inform policy making, the policy making process by identifying the causes of the problem that has to be tackled. You mentioned, for instance, the adoption of electric vehicles is one. So why people are not adopting electric vehicles uh, as one would want to. So somehow the, the knowledge of behavioral economics can provide the guidelines to see the main uh, drivers of these decisions. But these decisions come from the lab in the sense that we need to study the decision-making process properly and the laboratory is one of the settings that enables us to do so, especially when we don't have any clue on this decision-making process. So we need to have a controlled setting to, to test our hypothesis. When it comes to the more applied setting, we can also do some kind of field experiments because especially for policy interventions that affect the well-being of many people, it's better to see whether uh, the intervention is effective or not on a smaller sample and then uh, kind of enlarge the interventions on the overall population. And for instance, in the study of the adoption of electric vehicles, we exactly did that. We, we took some insights from the behavioral economics literatures that says that people are influenced by the framing of information, so the the way information is presented and which factors are more salient or not, to correct one behavioral failure that also we know from the behavioral literature. So the fact that we are present biased, as I mentioned earlier, we don't plan wisely our future well-being. And so we tested whether some messages that were highlighting some future factors related to electric vehicles that usually are not that visible in the moment of purchase make people more willing to adopt electric vehicles. So we tested it. That was an online experiment actually, but that was useful to understand in that specific population whether it was a good choice to adopt also on a larger scale or not. 
So there is always this test and trial approach that always informs somehow behavioral informed policy process. In addition, we can also say that another contribution that can uh, give behavioral economics to the policy making process is also making somehow the traditional interventions like subsidies and so, and so on more uh, impactful. That means that, for instance, if a policymaker wants to increase the renewable energy production in a target population, had to use, for instance, the assumptions of uh, rational choice theory, then what the policymaker will do is to reward people to if they uh, start producing renewable energy. But this might actually lead to some problems if the policymaker uh, does not check whether in the, in the target population there exists or there is some kind of intrinsic motivation. This is something that behavioral studies highlighted a lot. That means that there exist some people that, for the sake of doing an activity, just derive some pleasure. So they don't need some external motivation like a subsidy or a monetary incentive to do something. And, but when this happens, when they receive the monetary incentive and they are intrinsically motivated to do so, there might be a backfiring effect. That means that they might also willing to stop that activity. So we need to pay attention when we kind of touch these factors. Otherwise, there might be some unintended effect that we don't want to, to achieve somehow. Yeah, it's obviously so complicated and more complicated than certainly we can talk about in this podcast. But I appreciate you setting the groundwork for some of the things that you're thinking about day-to-day because especially when it comes to that context I think that's where people who might not be familiar with this area of work just hearing about some of those problems for the first time would be I think very eye-opening for people and definitely for me it makes me curious about when it comes to applied decision making when it comes to the policies you're talking about we've been hearing from different scientists over the past little while about how strongly their theoretical research is applied into a practical context. And I'd love to hear your personal experiences with that and how you've seen your research being used. Yeah, thanks a lot. I think I've been lucky at choosing the field where I decided to specialize because somehow behavioral economics has been increasingly applied now to to real world problems. So I I can say that uh, I've been lucky at making this choice. And as you mentioned at at the beginning, we can see applications of behavioral economics and and also behavioral sciences in a broader sense, which are all the, the sciences that study human behavior in a systematic way. So we see really a popular application nowadays in all over the world and also by governments, also the, the European Union, for instance. And so we, we see applications to energy policy, tax evasion, uh, health, and, and so many, many areas. But of course, this application is not free of barriers and, and limitations. I think that as we are acting on the behavior of people, attention must always be paid to people's goals and motivations. Otherwise, 
there is always the risk that we are interfering with somehow the freedom of choice. It is true that somehow behavioral informed interventions are made of changes to the child's environment that are seamless, that are somehow not weightful. I mentioned here that the behavioral informed intervention that is most popular, the so-called nudging. So this might be one kind of limitation. And maybe in terms of barriers that this application is also facing, I think that one way to improve the application would be by promoting a better dialogue between uh, different level actors, decision makers, and yet scientists and also civil society organizations, because somehow the best behaviorally informed interventions are those that are implemented by the actors that are closer to the target context. So that's why I mentioned different level actors, because I think of the potential that municipalities and regions have to really improve people's behavior by exploiting behavioral insights, but of course, because they, they know best the, the, the target context as well as civil society organization. But in order to make these interventions fully effective, then maybe a dialogue should be promoted with scientists and also other level actors. So I, I think there's, there's a lot of potential in that sense. Yeah, we've been hearing from other scientists about recent trends that we've started to see around the world with increasing distrust of scientific information in many fields, not just economics. And it is a little bit frightening to consider what the effects of this could be, especially if this becomes pervasive in our policymaking. So I think it is definitely a very big problem that needs a lot of attention as to its solutions. But I know that could be a conversation for another hour or so. To wrap up, I just wanted to ask you one final question regarding the future of your research. I was wondering what you think are some of the largest gaps in research that we see when it comes to applying behavioral economics to these topics such as energy, sustainability, and the problems therein? I think that's one way to enrich the research of behavioral economics applied to energy uh, relevant issues would be to make a better dialogue with sociology. I think that behavioral economics can still learn a lot from this field because yeah, economics and psychology have a focus on agency. That means that they think that decisions are made by autonomous decision makers who are not affected by the social surrounding. While sociology has a different focus usually on social structures such as laws, habitual practices and conventions that actually shape this autonomy and then also the needs and the final behavior. And when it especially comes to to energy issues, then I think that we can learn really a lot from sociology because especially for social practice theory, energy is seen not as a good that is consumed for its own sake, but is seen as a part of social practices such as cooking, showering, keeping warm and cool, for instance. And so in order to understand how to improve the behavior that people have in relation to energy, we need to understand also the meanings and the competencies 
and involve materials that people associate with practice that involve the use of energy. And so for that, I think that from a dialogue with sociology, we can maybe reach also better outcomes and provide also better insights to, to policymakers. Mm -hmm. I think this is one of the fundamental reasons why personally I am so attracted to these social sciences like psychology and economics because it is almost like there are different scales of studying the same phenomena. We were actually talking to a network scientist recently who studied how people behaved in networks. And when you might analyze that, you could look at starting with psychological foundations from one individual and build that up to perhaps how individuals interact within a company with sociology involved, and then how companies interact with each other and we have economics involved. And it was just really, really interesting to see how foundationally we're just still trying to understand all of the complicated nature of the human mind and what happens when we combine these decisions at different levels. And I think that there is an enormous potential to try to combine these different scales. And it's beyond any one person, but as different scientists start to collaborate, I'm very excited to see how behavioral economics can be part of that. And I wanted to thank you again for taking the time to talk about all of these insights today. And if anyone was curious to learn more about your work, where might they go? I'm very active on Twitter, but I'm also part, as I said earlier, of the GRC, the Scientific Hub of the European Commission. So there is a Twitter account also for that, in case you might be interested also in scientific findings of my colleagues. So yeah, I will be very happy to interact with the people who will be interested. For the rest, I'm very grateful to you for this opportunity to be here today.